This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about the impact and role of a leader's personal brand within the company that he or she either owns or leads or manages a team within. In fact, most successes and failures in business can be tied back to a leader's ability to be aware of and manage their personal brand. So, for example, building and maintaining culture is a big one right now, especially given the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic where we can't physically be together. So characteristics like empathy and ingenuity and thoughtfulness are completely critical to bond people given the circumstances we're in right now. Those of you that are a leader and you have these characteristics, you're probably doing a better job than most. And if you don't, honestly, you're probably struggling, which means you're going to have to work harder and be more intentional about what you're doing than someone who just inherently has those traits and the ability to bring them forward as a leader in their organization. And this applies when you're addressing employee hiring and retention, raising money, operations, selling. It's not just about managing people on the team. It's about managing all the relationships throughout the organization and all the people you come into contact with. And really, who you are at your core and knowing that will help you be able to channel your behaviors and actions in a way that will help boost this or adjust the impact you can have on the organization. And we just want to be totally clear again, this isn't necessarily just for leaders who are entrepreneurs and starting their own thing. It's not just the CEO of a company. It's not you know, just for owners. It's for anyone that has any type of leadership role in any organization. Because if you're taking responsibility and ownership for pieces of the business, you're acting like a leader and therefore this speaks to you. Yeah, and, we, and we're getting these questions a lot because in you know the struggle that is a pandemic, you know, a lot of people have had to switch and really accommodate their organization in a way that's really uncomfortable for them. It's just not the traditional way of being able to do it. And they're finding that some of the basic behaviors and actions that were suiting them in the past that was helping to facilitate con- connections. So, for example, just having like team outings, like lunches and stuff are just not working anymore. And that really means that you have to go back into your own personal brand as a leader and really understand what characteristics need to be uh, thought through in, in, in what your awareness around those characteristics are. Because I remember, as we say, your characteristics are good or bad, but how they present themselves in certain situations can be good or bad. And that's why you look at the behaviors and actions and see if those behaviors and actions are suiting what you're trying to accomplish at the time. So, you know, it, 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 it might seem a little bit like a um, confusing conversation when you think about, you know, brand truths and, and personal brand truths as a leader, but really people who are very much innately understanding that, aware of that, continue to adjust that are really faring better in this time and able to help their organization really um, continue to thrive despite that. But if, if, if our, all this conversation on personal brand is still kind of confusing to you, we do have a um, a, a really in-depth episode. And actually, I just looked and it's our most popular episode yeah, now. Yeah, I saw yeah. that today. So um, it's episode three. So please go back and listen to that. We go through all the specific uh, steps of defining your personal brand and then how to really cultivate that. So that will really help you um, have a good basis so that this uh, conversation that we're about to have with you guys makes a lot more sense. 
Exactly. But for those of you that have already listened to that one and you've done all the work and you feel like you have a really well-defined personal brand that you're regularly working on with intention, we can jump into today's topic, which is four personal brand truths that every leader should know. Let's jump in. Okay. The first one is be clear and committed to your personal brand. So remember our comment just a few minutes ago about that previous podcast. If you have not done the exercise to proactively and deliberately identify your characteristics, your appearance, your behaviors and actions that make up your personal brand, and you haven't put them into practice, and you haven't been working on it for a while, you are not ready to project this brand onto the business. In fact, I would go as far to say that that you could potentially do more harm than good because if you don't know who you are at your core, how in the world are you going to expect anyone else to? The culture of any organization starts with a leader. It's the heartbeat. It's important to every single aspect, what you sell, what you provide, the services you put out there, who you serve, all of those types of things. So seriously, you haven't done the work? Go back and do it. Otherwise, you're not ready to influence the organization in any significant way today. And I would just say um, this was a big one for me when I decided to set out on my own, having been a part of agencies for so many years. I always kind of had to balance my personal brand with the brand of the organizations. And I think I always was striving to find the best fit for me at the point in time where I was within my personal brand journey. But even as good a fit as something can be, it's still not truly reflective of you if it's not yours. And so therefore, when I made the move to go on my own, which we've talked about that in previous episodes too on entrepreneurship, it was really important for me to think through what was it about me that I felt compelled me forward really at the foundation to go and create my own thing. And what that started as was just my true passion for directness and the ability to do far better work with respectful conversations and just really hitting on the head what we were trying to achieve that then would allow clients to get things for more value, less money, less time, and we could really get down to brass tacks and focus on the work versus all the politics that come out when you're within these organizations and you have a lot of players. And like I said, if you're not the owner, you have to then do what is reflective of that brand at the end of the day in spite of what your personal brand is. Yeah. And and, and you have to really figure out right what your role is within that broader context exactly. too. And that's where we see a lot of the conflict happening as well. Is And we've gotten a lot of questions on that. And I think we're actually going to discuss a little bit more later. But it's about... Um, has my personal brand then reflect within the broader context of the company? But then what what elements of my personal brand am I going to call upon in order to lead my team? And there's going to be ones that are going to work well, and there's Mm going to be ones that aren't going to work well. And being fully aware of how those are going to um, manifest themselves in the style of team that you want to have and what is going to be the impact that you want to drive all of those, you know, being very, very important. So, April, I mean, can you like to to kind of really hit this one home? Can you kind of you know share with everybody like one personal brand characteristic? And you kind of said this, but like just mm-hmm. crystal clear, like what is one personal brand characteristic that was like fundamental in your success? And then what was one that was like okay, I got to really manage this one? Yeah, absolutely. Add? So I mentioned direct. And that is just a fundamental characteristic of mine. 
again, to Anne's point, one that I've have to had have to manage for good and sometimes for bad. You know, being too direct with the wrong audience can have a negative impact. So that's a characteristic that I feel like I've learned over the years to really use to my advantage and learn the ways in which to put that to work for me within my business. I would say on the other side, one of my characteristics that I probably don't intentionally bring to the table when I'm in business necessarily is competitiveness. I have a very competitive streak within me. Um, For any of you that know my family, we all have a very competitive (laughs) streak within us. We've raced each other in marathons and such. I mean, there's a lot of it there. Um, I'd like to say that it's always good natured. That's not always the case. So that's one of the ones. Only if April loses. Yeah, only if I lose. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would say that that is one that I think early on in my career drove me, you know, I I wanted to be the best. I wanted to do the best. I wanted to stand out. But I think once I embraced the idea of teams and the fact that unfortunately in the agency world, there is a lot of that I behavior. I want to be the most creative. I want to be the visionary. I'm the biggest personality, all of those types of things that didn't work to my advantage. And so while that's inherently very much part of who I am, and I would say that it does fuel me to always be better, I make a very conscious choice not to put that at the forefront when I'm in business situations. Mm -hmm. So, All right. And number two, which I'm going to pass on to Anne, decide which aspects of your personal brand will influence your business. And I think you gave me a really nice segue into this one. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I didn't set that up or anything. Um, And and, and, I'm just going to put a couple of fine points on this, and I'll give another example of one of our recent clients here, because I think you, um, you, you set it up really nicely in that there's going to be parts of your personal brand that you want to reflect in your business and there's going to be parts that you don't. And that is totally fine. It doesn't mean you're not being authentic. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not running the business the way you want to run it. It's it's because you have to be very intentional on what's going to create the right business for you. And what do you want your brand in, in order to represent outwardly to your desired customer base? Because it's not always the, you know, who we are inside as people are always the way that we want to reflect our brand in certain situations. So for example, we um, were just recently working on a client and you and I went back and forth on this one mm-hmm. where um, we said, you know, you said that she's like a naturally kind of spunky person. And you were kind of like, you were doing, you're managing this one. So I was kind of looking at it from afar and I looked at it I was like, hmm, well, her brand doesn't necessarily represent spunk. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine. But as we were kind of trying to decide what her tone of voice should be, it's like, well, do we pull back a little bit on this spunk if her brand needs to represent a different kind of tone or a different kind of context because in this case it was all about transformation and trust in you know some of these really really important aspects of of her brand and so like the spunky nature could work if she was going to lean really far into it but if she wasn't going to then it was going to make feel a little off if like somebody walked in and the brand all the brand um, equity was like in one way and, and, and feeling like one way, but all of a sudden you have this like really kind of like spunky personality that, you know, was like that that was facing the business. So it was it could seem a little bit incongruous. And, and then with that, it kind of feels a little the experience feels a little off. So we had a, like a really long conversation about, OK, how much of this comes forth and how much of it, you know, and, and obviously, you know, you want to feel like you in your business, but you you don't also want to overly indulge your own pursuits in your business as well, because that also could be 
a conflict in what you're trying to achieve. So you you kind of have to keep them a little bit separate, but you also have to be um, totally aware of where um, your personal brand characteristics were going to uh, manifest themselves in behaviors and actions that are going to be conducive and not. Yeah, and I think what you heard right there is really an insight into the way that Ann and I work together, um, which I just want to point out that this is a place where you can talk to other people about the aspects of your personal brand or that of clients that you're working with. I think one of the things that we do well is, you know, I had identified personally with this client just personality-wise, we jived really well in addition to working on her brand. And I think because of that, I was a little bit blind. I had a little bit of a blind spot, I guess, on what should come forward and what should not. And while that could have been a huge area of differentiation for her, when I heard Anne's feedback, I really kind of went back and I thought, it's not necessarily spunk, and I just talked about directness, but it really is like that is what she has. And so she wants to work with clients who are going to take her feedback for the professional that she is and lean into that and allow her to manage from that point of view. So it's more professional than spunk. It's like a direct professionalism. And so when we pulled back to that, it was really the fine point that I think pulled mm -hmm. all of the tone of voice together and then let her be off on her way to bringing that to life. And, you know, she, she just implemented it. But the changes I've seen so far have been exponentially better than what we had before. So, yeah, and I think that's the same if you're a leader, not not just in a business context and not necessarily needing being a leader in an entrepreneurial context mm -hmm. is, again, you need to define what aspects of that are going to be part of your little entrepreneurial you know, world, whether it's your team or your organization, um, so that you can be very clear about how your tone and how all your brand attributes are going to come alive within the context of your team and what your team is going to deliver. Exactly. Yeah. So that brings us to our next one, which this is number three, create a brand identity that consistently ties back to your personal brand for business. So that example we were just talking about, that's tone of voice. That's part of that personal brand, the verbal side of it. So once you've put your stake in the ground, you've really identified your personal brand, you've been very choiceful to the conversation we just had about which aspects are coming forward, now it's time to create the assets that will bring that to life because you're only one person, right? So all the tools at your disposal much, must work really hard to get you to that place where a consistent experience embraces whoever you're coming into contact with without you having to be the person there. So mm -hmm. here we're talking about logos, color palette, photography, all the things you guys hear me talk about all the time, tone of voice, those brand personality characteristics coming forward, all wrapped up into a really nice toolkit that you can then share, whether it's like, oh, we're building this you know, new company brand or I'm building this team within or we're building a brand for a client, whatever it might be. You've got to be really intentional, very pragmatic and really decisive about those tools because they are going to set the tone. I mean, to the conversation we just had about that tweak to that one tone of voice principle, that was one of four that lived under a brand personality for her that once we got it right, we knew we got it right. If we hadn't, mm -hmm. things would have probably always felt a little bit off. Um, one of the examples that I always love here is Phil Knight. Um, 
I think I've mentioned I'm a runner. So, of course, there's a connection there with him. But I think the thing about him is he was a runner as well. He was very passionate about the sport. He was disenchanted with the shoes to the point where he actually set out to find slash help engineer the perfect shoe for running. Fast forward all these years later, and the Nike brand has really embodied athleticism at its very core, no matter what type of athlete you are, from professional all the way down to just an amateur, that when you put that stuff on, you can really feel the energy of the brand. And that initial inspiration he had to bring something to the masses that was better than what he himself experienced as a runner. And everything from that swoosh to the just do it. I mean, when you see their campaigns, you can't help but be energized. And that's because he brought his personal brand and his personal passion and who he was as a runner to build that brand in order to bring literally the best products and brand out there to people in the masses. Yeah. And another one I, I, (laughs) I referred to on this one, and this one's a personal passion of my daughter's is Chick-fil-A. Um, and I, everybody knows that Chick-fil-A is not open Sundays. I mean, nowhere is it open Sundays, not even at, you know, the amusement park that's in our backyard. There's a Chick-fil-A there. It is not open Sundays. So, and that's just, that goes back to their personal brand of the owner and the founder of that's a day for family. And you can only imagine how much revenue they're losing on a Sunday, uh, and it's uh, I, I've even had so my daughter Corinne has been has asked us can we change our travel plans, mom, so we can like leave on Saturday and come back on Saturday <laughs> so that she doesn't miss out on the travel day, which is usually Sunday, and she can stop at Chick Fil A when we like when we're traveling. So I mean, it's it's definitely something that people recognize. It's definitely something people respect, um, and it's a foundation of who that brand is at the core. Because the founder chose that that was going to be something that's going to be fundamental to the brand that he was actually going to um, bring forth. Um, now, is it a very good chicken sandwich? Yeah, so I'm told I'm gluten-free. I can't eat the chicken sandwich, but um, I can eat the grilled chicken. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's a chicken sandwich. But like the equity in, in, in the um, that they built as a result of the personal brand that he's bringing forward is making that brand more than just a chicken sh- sandwich. Yes, exactly. Um, And I would say, you know, to bring it back very personally to Anne and me, I mean, we align fundamentally on certain characteristics that have led our values and that then brought us together at a much deeper level, which is the connection you feel with these brands is when you have something more meaningful than to the point of just a chicken sandwich, right? Or a pair of running shoes or a jacket or whatever. You feel that passion and energy that comes forth from a leader, a founder, whoever really had that idea and then went forward with the business the similar way that we have done. Um, And we talk all the time about speaking directly but respectfully to clients and not wasting anybody's time and making sure that we're just at the end of the day doing good work with people that we like. That's really the essence of our entire company, our entire initiative. Um, We've told the story of how we got together uh, in a previous episode, so I won't belabor that point for those of you that have already listened to it. But just the point that, you know, as founders and leaders ourselves, we have really lived this and breathed this, and it's what's led to our success. And I think it's also, some of the elements of what we've learned in our previous life, it's kind of like um, 
when you learn what not to do to some extent, too, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you're like, well, um, and, and all my, you know, uh, well, you can all say we've had some good and bad bosses and leaders in our in our history. But as much as you can respect the way that some people have done and, and, and led and, and done work, you can also look back and say, I am not going to do it like that, which I think was one of the reasons we got to some of the directness and why mm-hmm. that was so critical and important, because it was something that we were dramatically missing in our own respective corporate environments. And but it's something we really, really appreciated from a leader. Yes. You know, and so, you know, you, you have to remember, too, that as a leader, you can't always indulge in what you want it to be. You have to really be cognizant of what your team is going to respond to. And if you happen to be, um, and we're going to talk about this, you know, in a future episode, but if you happen to be kind of conflict adverse, for example, but your team is a very dynamic, very emotionally driven team, that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so you have to really recognize that the, some of those personal brand attributes, if you're conflict adverse and your team really responds to conflict, then in productive conflict, not like mean, torturous conflict, um, then you're going to have to really figure out how you're going to address that and what behaviors and actions you're going to put in place in order to foster that not squash it. Yes. So I think that's really, really important is that you'll learn as much about, you know, from people about how you want to be as much as you're going to learn from people how you're not going to be, how you're not going to lead. Yeah. Which I think is actually a nice segue to the next one, which you're going to also take. Mm. Um, Number four is institutionalize the parts of your brand that you want to be your legacy. So here we're talking more of the long-term vision of those assets that you're bringing forward. Yeah, and I think this is really, really important because this is what solidifies it and makes it real, right? Because you could talk about it all you want, but when you solidify it and you make it real, you put it down on paper, you start in, 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 intertwining it in your About Us page, you start intertwining it into purpose, mission, value statements, you start entwining it into mantras that you um, are, 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 you represent and that you're continually reinforcing to your team. This becomes real. And this is what is actually taken and becomes your legacy as you move down the road. And nobody's going to know it unless you actually institutionalize it. And that's that's super important because there's going to be pieces that, um, you know, you're going to be you're going to leave to be flexible. But there are going to be pieces like we talked about, you know, the the passion um, for sport that, you know, that Phil Knight had that became the essence of Nike. The the principle of uh, Christian values of no working on Sundays that became a, a, a value for Chick-fil-A that still is like very much intact. Those are ones that you're going to have to set and establish in order to be able to leave that that legacy, because then when that is down there, that becomes the thing that gets passed down. Right. And so you really need to have that and you really need to make sure that that is very clear. So initially, you know, this is going to what's going to represent you, because especially if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you're a leader, you are kind of the, the manifestation of whatever that is at that time. But as people come in and, and, and it evolves and it's, it gets more personality and it kind of breathes, you know, there's going to be other nuances that are going to give it color. So you want to make sure that the parts that are really, really important maintain their integrity and then the other parts are free to kind of move. It's also going to help you as a leader to understand that so that you're not like having that knee-jerk reaction every time somebody does something, it's like, is that against like what I want or what I not want? You're going to be very clear in your head that like, oh, yes, I have space for that kind of a nuance. 
as long as it's not violating this key principle. And it, it allows you not to be as paranoid and in and worry about, you know, um all the all the different um kind of stimulus that's coming at your way and you can like be a little bit more uh, accommodating to other people and it just creates a little bit more of a vibrant team um, whether you're an entrepreneur or a leader of, of a team so I, I think that's really really fundamentally important that you really establish and clearly identify what are the key points of your personal brand that are going to be your legacy and then let everything else kind of breathe. And you might massage that as you go. Um, so it's not like something you have to write in stone and then, hey, I'm done with it. It's you, but you have to start somewhere so that people are very clear what's expected of them. And then you can have the, uh, the you can have the conversations in a very open way and you can continue to let everything kind of develop in a more organic way. Yeah. And I would say the other part about that is it lets you keep your eye on the bigger picture. So to Mm -hmm. Anne's point, you're not micromanaging every situation that happens because you've built in that flexibility. Um, One of the unfortunate examples that I think sheds light on the what not to do is, you know, agencies are our agencies, and they, as such, have a lot of um, changes, different cultures over time, people coming in and out all the time. And I think that that can be a huge challenge for someone leading. And I've worked at too many of them to see moments where you can kind of see the, the train wreck coming, so to speak, right? But somebody wakes up one day and is like, wait a minute, who are we? Why are we here? What have we been doing? Why are we doing it again? And really, that comes from leadership, right? It's not the role and responsibility of the people doing the day-to-day work with their heads down, making sure stuff gets done for clients. It's the, you know, the head CEO all the way down to every leader of the organization. And unfortunately, there's just been too many situations where fill in the blank, you grew too fast. You took on clients that you really shouldn't have for reasons that didn't align with your values. Um, You chased after something that was a dream that really wasn't aligned with the business strategy and the model you were trying to build. I mean, all these situations can happen. A merger and acquisition went bad, whatever the case might be. And nothing causes an organization to crumble faster than when that brand represents nothing or something very muddy and then no longer speaks to the broader organization and all the subsequent people that it touches outside of the organization in a way that's truly meaningful. And I think that's a really good point. And and I'll equate it to something that, um, you know, hits really home for me and, and hopefully kind of provides an analogy that people can understand. Because I think what you said is so fundamentally important in in the context of how what you build around too. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's take like you know a rock band, right? So Bon Jovi, one of my favorite rock bands. I'm a big hair '80s fan. Love big hair '80s. Okay, the band is named after him, right? So it's Bon Jovi. So if John Bon Jovi leaves, is the band still a band? Does it still have a brand? Like, what is the music? Like, you know, and and that's you know. We talked about naming before too, yes. and how important like naming is when you're kind of when you're trying to develop a brand equity around it. So you know, can Bon Jovi exist without John Bon Jovi? I don't know. But if you look at another brand or another band like um, Chicago, for example, Chicago has built their brand around the music. Now they've had many different lead singers. They've had many different instrumentalists. They've come and go. You could say one's better than the other. I personally like Peter Cetera more than all the others. But um, 
the music can sustain itself. It outlives one single person because the band is based on the type of music it wants to create, not just one person that has defined who the band is. And, you know, if you have to find if you want to go in and out and that's fine, but most people are trying to develop something that's sustaining. And so you have to really think about how that is reflected in what you're building around or else you do kind of lose your way. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a really fundamental way that um, there's a, uh, that, that businesses tend to kind of, like you said, wake up one day and they're like, I don't know, even know who we are. And then it all falls apart. Yeah. Well, and I think it's indicative too of that personal brand with the Bon Jovi example pushing too much of that one personality, right, into the band. And so that's that balance that we're talking about is you have to lead. Yes, you have to build it. You have to make sure you're very choiceful, but you can go too far. And what you don't want is your legacy to become just you. And then when you're gone, it's gone. It's gone. Right. But that's it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right. So for those of you that have been listening, and thank you for listening, um, we do a second kind of setup here of what we call in the trenches. And this segment is where we give real world examples that may be specific to certain industries, but with broad enough application that you can digest and put it into action no matter what kind of business you work within. So the first one we have here is I own an agency and we are having trouble maintaining employees. So, of course, this one's directed at me, so I will take this one. (laughs) Um, This has been a big one for me over the years. Every agency from the very first one where 24 people were laid off the week after I started and that was my first experience ever – um, all the way up to being at Curiosity and trying to lead and maintain and, and pick the right talent. Um, I think this gets really, really tricky, right? Because as we've been talking about personal brand and the flexibility of the brand you're building, this is where it all kind of lives in the nuances. So being really clear on that flexibility is important. But I would say if you're having trouble maintaining employees and this is a new problem or like it's happening in droves and people are leaving, that signals that something has changed within the organization. And we would be willing to bet that it has something to do with the very fundamental brand and culture of the organization. You know, agencies are known for being cool and hip and fun, and therefore they try to attract young talent and people that have, you know, better technological skills, for example, or just totally new thinking and aren't tainted yet by the business to balance out, you know, those of us that were more legacy employees. I think if you're having trouble recruiting or keeping any of those types of things, it's because there's not a clear view out there of who you are, why you exist, and why people would want to work with you and for you. Um, 
I think it also can signal that the leader of the organization has either tapped out or become distracted or taken a pet project and kind of lost that vision, whatever that case might be. And that puts you in a really dangerous place. So this is where you put the ego aside. You take a big step back. You get your you know, most trusted advisors together. This has to be the most important thing you do. Don't put your head in the sand and say, oh, I'll figure it out later. It'll figure itself out. It never works that way. I can tell you from experience. So really take a moment, pause, take a step back and figure it out. I would say a really good example, and I won't m- mention the agency by name, but a friend of mine recently took a new job, and their CEO is new to the helm and actually will just call people off the cuff, any level of employee at any random time. And I've heard it can be pretty disconcerting when it first happens, right? But once you realize that he's really just calling to check in, see how you're doing personally and professionally, keep a pulse on things going on in the organization, let you know that you matter and he cares, it's actually a really welcome thing for those people. And so I would say that's a really good example, especially for someone that's newer to that seat, right, to really get in there, show that they're going to make things work, show that they care, and keep that culture moving forward as it should. Yeah, and I think um, just a... A note from the other side of that dime, which is the client side, the transition on an agency side, it can be extremely detrimental to an overall team dynamic in in the quality of the work and just the timing it takes to uh, continue to move forward. Um, I know when, especially when key members of the agency would turn over, it was, it felt like we were almost starting over from the beginning where you had to retrain that person and the person had to kind of come in and like learn, learn all the dynamics. And then they had to figure out like how they were going to engage. And especially if you don't have a strong leader who has a very strong personal brand and hasn't done any of these things that we've talked about, about how do you quickly onboard someone onto your um, your team, it, it becomes a big, huge distraction for everybody. So, you know, if you I know like agency jumping is, is a thing and I, I've, I've seen it happen, especially over my several like decades over at P&G, but you know, do your best to try to minimize the impact. And you can do that by doing everything that we've been talking about as a leader, by understanding your personal brand, documenting what's going to be important for your team, understanding, you know, what are your your clear points that are going to be the, the, the key ones, and then what are you going to allow, you know, the flex around, and then making that easier so that you don't have to belabor the, the whole transition period. Yeah. I mean, I can say on the agency side, when I got to that leadership position, those were like the most dreaded calls, right? Because no matter how you try to spin it, the client on the other end is like, are you freaking serious? We just lost our team. And sometimes it was again. Again. Or, you know, you just invested money in bringing somebody along and then that person's gone already. And it's like, oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Exactly. Okay, so you get the point on that one. Um, The second one is, I recently started my own law practice, and I'm not sure how to make a name for myself. Okay, so we talked about getting really clear on your personal brand, and this is the reason for doing that. Because in addition to establishing who you are, you really need to think about what's unique and ownable so that you can stand out from others that are in your space. And I think, especially in the profession of being a lawyer, there's some stigmas associated with that profession as kind of a necessary evil. So not only are you working to develop as a new 
person coming into the profession. You're working against others and some that have been there a really long time. And you're working against the fact that people just inherently don't like, don't trust, fill in the blank, lawyers because of stereotypes, bad experiences, all of those types of things. So what you have to do is really dig deep on your personal brand. And this is not like, I'm the best workers' compensation lawyer that there is, or I'm going to charge the lowest price, or I'm going to charge the highest price. You know, all of those types of decisions are very surface level. We're talking about really doing your homework on your personal brand. And what that will ultimately lead you to is that thing that will help you stand out from the pack. And in some cases, it may have very little to do with the actual work you are doing, which is the point of this In the Trenches segment, right? So I will use a very near and dear example. My dad has been a workers' comp lawyer, so there's that reference, for 35 years. And when he came into the practice, he was a very young lawyer. He had inherited it. Things weren't going exceptionally well. And he was like, what am I going to do about this? And so what he did, honestly, was really start listening to the clients, especially the super disgruntled ones. And what he learned is that they just didn't feel heard. They didn't feel like the lawyer was listening to them. They could never get him on the phone. Um, they didn't. They felt like he was multitasking and doing other things. And so it was a really bad experience overall. And pair that with all of the negative associations with the category in general, right? That stinks for those people because they're coming in assuming a bad experience and they're getting one. So it's fulfilling that idea in their head. And so honestly, what my dad started doing was taking all the phone calls, literally. And 35 years later, the feedback that he consistently gets and now my brother who's taking over consistently get is that they like them and they trust them because they're willing to get on the phone with them. It was as simple as that. And that led to success. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about and really being honest about who you are. You know, my dad fundamentally loves to talk to people. So even though he hasn't always loved being a lawyer, that part has keep has kept him fueled over the years and excited and, and really engaged because that's part of who he is. That's one of his characteristics. So there you go. Yeah, and, I, and that's uh, some demonstrating some marketing smarts too because if you think about how you're going to actually market a law firm in going back to the what, uh, the statement you originally said is you don't really need a lawyer until you need a lawyer, <laughs> yeah, right? And so like all the traditional marketing channels that you would traditionally use to advertise a normal business doesn't make a lot of sense because it's really in the moment from which you need a lawyer. So a lot of that comes from reputation. A lot of it comes from word of mouth. A lot of it comes from, hey, you know, um, I, I know my friend over here had an issue and so I'm going to go to what, you know, my friend said and you're going to go seek that out because of a, a, a a shared experience. So that is so fundamental to being able to market your law firm. And there's other, you know, um, industries that are like this as well, because it, it's 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 also situational. It's mm-hmm. also contextually situational. So um, it's it's definitely um, smart because he they are differentiating. I think when we were um, doing the uh, presentation for um, LMA, I, I think I, I Googled and there's like 250 small business lawyers just listed in Cincinnati, right? You know, and so uh, who's going to go through all those? Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Number three in the trenches. I own a restaurant and another steakhouse is opening down the street, which has us a bit on edge. What do you suggest? Hmm. I'll take that. I like steak. (laughs) 
Um, I think, you know, th- this is a really um, interesting one because this is usually when, when, when people freak out, it's usually because they haven't done the work to really identify their brand. Right. And you're going to get freaked out anyway, but it depends on whether or not it's a like big colossal freak out or like, oh, there's like a mouse that's in my kitchen, literally, figuratively, and I need to kind of figure out how to get the mouse out. So um, I, I used to use that analogy all the time when I was at P&G. So sorry, <laughs> guys, if that doesn't ring true to you. But um, I think this is really like an element of really going back into understanding what your story is. And we talked about this, about what is it about your personal brand that is now being reflected within your business that makes a point of difference that is going to allow you to continue to give that experience to your your customers that nobody else can match. And really, it's beyond the food. It's beyond just, you know, being a, you know, a good restaurant. I mean, We've talked about this before, like that's literally and figuratively table stakes. That's what people come in for. They come in for the food. Um, so, you know, you have to develop and, and, and give them something that's good. They're going to remember you by that. They're going to want to talk to you, uh, talk to others about you and, and give them like that fodder for that, that content. So you really need to take a step back. Take a look at what that restaurant is going to be, you know, so really like assess your competition. Think about what your differentiating factors are as a brand. Think about what you as your as an owner, as a leader, uh, the manager um, are going to instill and you're going to, um, you know, bring back up and you're going to refresh and then rally everybody behind that. Make sure everybody's on the same page by what you stand for, what kind of experience you're going to create and make sure that that is very, very solid. And that's going to then reflect back to your clientele. It's it could also be a, a found a foundational part of like maybe a promotion that you do. Um, it could be a a, a new uh, menu like items that you kind of create. It could it can inspire a, a lot of different ways of of just refreshing your restaurant and bringing people to you. Um, especially when there's like a new and like you know this new thing out here kind of sitting there and it's all nice and glittery and you know and maybe you've been around for a little bit too. So think about how you might you might you know be able to refresh yourself on on this, um, and I want to. April wrote a really really fantastic blog on this um, a, a several months ago. So I, I really highly suggest you guys go back and, and and look at the blog too. It is restaurant focused, but you'll take away so many other nuances about business in general um, based on how um, certain restaurants in Cincinnati have uh, really adapted to uh, the, the COVID environment and being able to really sustain um, in equity and even kind of reimagine their equity. But one quote specifically that I thought was uh, was pretty poignant that I wanted to make sure to, to call out is um, one from Jeff Ruby, who has several restaurants here in Cincinnati, and particularly probably the best steak I've ever had anywhere. Um, but he says, people don't come to a Jeff Ruby restaurant because they are hungry. They can go to the refrigerator if they're hungry. They come to our restaurants to celebrate life. And that's really like the fundamental essence of what he is trying to evoke through the experience with his restaurant. And he does it very well. Yeah. And I would say to build on that point, no matter how strong you think your brand is, do not rest on your laurels. Do not rest on your ego and think that, oh, we'll be fine. It doesn't matter that somebody new is coming in. I mean, using Jeff mm-hmm. Ruby as an example, he's always been very <laughs> hungry, pun intended, um, <laughs> about the idea of 
expanding, right? And so he very pragmatically built a very strong reputation and following in Cincinnati, then chose the one restaurant, the actual Jeff Ruby restaurant, to expand into other cities uh, in the Midwest region that have similar footprints and personalities, and then train the staff accordingly to provide the same experience regardless of what city you're in. Mm -hmm. And so we've been, you know, I can speak personally to a lot of the locations in other cities. My husband worked for him for 10 years and actually did some of the training. So it's very, very disciplined. So I think he's a good example of always having his eye on the prize, whether there's new competitors in the space or not. But I think sometimes where restaurants fail is they have this inflated opinion of themselves and they think that they're just going to be okay and it's not going to matter. And okay, it'll be a flash in the pan and maybe we'll see some traffic going over there. And those are the ones that always get caught off guard when they really shouldn't have been. And it can be everything from the new restaurant paying more and, you know, stealing their employees, especially if it's a similar type of restaurant. That's a really easy Mm -hmm. thing to do. Um, Or, you know, they just continue to do the same old thing and around them all these places are opening. I mean, if you're not focused as the owner of that brand, no one else is going to do it for you. And competition or not, you really have to make sure that you are tirelessly working to ensure that you're top of mind for people in a very competitive space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... All right. Fourth and final in the trenches. My company is being acquired and my gut is telling me the culture will change. Another big one from the agency side, folks. I have lived through this many times um, and I have seen it work, but more often than not to the point of learning from mistakes, I've seen it not work. And I think what happens here is people get distracted by the idea of sale or merger or something bigger, you know, their eyes go wide with a big payout. Um, or people that have run the company for a long time are going to retire and they don't really have any succession plan, whether it be mm-hmm. with family or others, you know, that have worked for them for a long time and they're ready to be out of it. I mean, there's lots of situations that come up. But I think what I've seen happen is. Everybody gets really excited about the idea and then kind of forgets the brand and the legacy that has been built to date. I can tell you that when third parties enter, it gets really sticky. Those are situations where the agendas don't line up. You might be told something and then you get into a room with everybody and you're like, wait, you were told this. I was told this. What's going on? I just think these types of situations get really emotional, really messy And everybody kind of just loses sight of the goal of doing it in the first place. And so uh, I remember being in a room at 23 years old that I probably had no business being in, watching these parties go back and forth of two companies that were being put together by an outside equity fund. And how are we going to integrate all the leaders? What were you going to call ourselves? You know, all of these shiny things like what's the new logo going to be and all of that when at the very foundation, no one was talking about the different cultures of the organizations and how are they going to come together? And the fact that we now had, I think, seven offices across the world and who was going to be at the helm. And then you watch the founders kind of, you know, tiptoeing slash arguing with each other about, you know, who was going to be in charge. And at one point it was like, can we put all five names together and make a new name? I mean, it just got totally insanely crazy. But I think 
the point of this is if you have taken the time to build a business and you really want your legacy to move forward, and if you don't, that's okay too. If you're okay, like I'm done, I'm selling it, I built my thing, I'm out, that's totally cool. But if you really want to leave a legacy that's more than just the building and then sale of this company, you've got to be the one to ask the harder questions because there aren't very many of those people in the room in my experience. And once the train gets rolling, it just goes. And then you're left looking back and thinking, what the heck happened? Uh, That organization that I mentioned when I was a young pup uh, in rooms that I shouldn't have been, I think that they changed hands after the merger. I think the company lasted two and a half years and then the subsequent four to five, it traded hands many more times and now it's gone today. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. And from my corporate world, I um, got to experience a couple of different um, acquisitions, one specifically being the Gillette acquisition. And you know, what you said about really understanding uh, the legacy that you want to have and how that legacy then transcends into a new organization I mean, the case in point right here where we re- I say we when I, I'm speaking figures about P&G at that moment in time, realized that, you know, the organizations were so culturally different, trying to assimilate them into one either by in such P&G was buying Gillette it would be at a P&G assimilation of the Gillette culture was just going to be detrimental. And actually, Gillette operates very independently still to this day, um, still in Boston, considered another headquarters. Um, you know, they still have top management that aligns, but, you know, it's a very different culture. Um, and, uh, you know, that that can work as well. But it's only because they were so fundamentally clear about what was important about the company. It's a legacy company. They have, you know, their products are legacy products, but the performance of the products was very much aligned, you know, in those values, those principles are very much aligned about performance, about uh, consumer being, you know, boss, which A.G. Laffley was famous in saying. So all those principles aligned, but the cultures were too different to assimilate together and, and they were maintained. But I remember having to bring in and try to convince some of the packaging folks to come to <laughs> to come to P&G and I couldn't convince one. I couldn't. And I'm, you know, between Boston, Cincinnati, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who's like, yeah, why would you go to Cincinnati? But like, there was a lot of compelling reasons for people to come to Cincinnati. I think actually the funny that the most compelling one was it stays lighter later. <laughs> that was like, that was one of my big selling points. It doesn't get dark as quickly here in Cincinnati and actually kind of got paused more than anything about houses being cheaper and, you know, school. I'm like, uh-huh. no, that was like, no, it's like, it gets stays lighter. Like, really? Really? So, you know, I think that's just case in point to what you were saying. And I think it's really, really important and why it's so important to make sure you're very clear on your legacy so that if these mergers or, 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 or the positions to sell your business come along, you can have some direction of, of how that is going to um, come to fruition and if it's the right partner to sell to as well. So you talk about that a lot as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so that closes out our In the Trenches section, and we always like to end with a real-world example. So today we have a personal brand founder. Sometimes we talk super effective, sometimes not so great. Today we have one that we feel like has done a very good job of staying true to his personal brand and also in spite of a category where we've seen some bad examples of that. So uh, the founder of Instagram is Kevin Sistrom. Uh, and probably a lot of you don't know his name. 
Um, I learned about him because this is the kind of stuff that I get geeked down on, right? But, you know, it's not the same as talking about Zuckerberg and Facebook, right? Like, you don't necessarily tie the founder to the brand automatically. And I think the really interesting thing about Kevin is he's in the technological space, but I would consider him to have a more balanced right brain, left brain situation Mm -hmm. going on. So what I mean by that is when you look at him, I mean, he looks like a tech dude, right? But when you really dig into him, so he has and has always had a love of photography, so much so that he went to Florence to study it. And I'm going to totally butcher the name of this camera, um, but it's Holga, I guess, is the camera. And it made square photos. So you can kind of see where I'm going with the founding of Instagram here, right? So he loves photography. He's looking to build a business. Again, he's in the tech space. He partners with Mike Krieger. They kind of are, you know, deciding what to do. And at that time, cameras on phones were getting better, but there was no real standard technique anywhere in social. So the pictures that were showing up were either real bad because the cameras on phones were real bad, or they were just like not really adhering to any sort of branded style. So Kevin took that passion of photography and that idea of that square camera or picture and started building Instagram. And he took input, and this is the the great example of ideas coming from anywhere, literally, He didn't move too fast. He thought about what he wanted it to be, but he also took input from anywhere. And so he started playing around with filters, and that was kind of like the first manifestation of it actually going public. And his wife just refused to use the platform at all. And he's like, why won't you use the platform? And she's like, because I can't take pictures like you can. They look horrible. I don't want any part of that. And, you know, I'm just going to feel like a failure. And so that was the manifestation of this technology that they had of like what to do with that filtering technique, right? Then it started to be built into the platform. And so, um, you know, they just really had fun with it, tested and learned. Obviously, it turned into a huge business that was eventually sold to Facebook. Um, But to the point of then also being careful about missteps, the first name that they actually picked was Bourbon, spelled B-U-R-B-N, because that's Kevin's favorite drink. That's the only reason. (laughs) And good thing they took a step back there and decided, no, that doesn't give any explanation to what this is. And things like Facebook already existed, right? So what was a more intuitive name? And eventually they got to Instagram, right? Instant photo, you know, it's one little photo, that square, you know, little piece in time. And I think in a space, especially a technology space, where we have all these big brands, personalities, you know, people that you identify, he's kind of lived under the radar. And when Instagram was purchased by Facebook and it started to feel like the culture and the intent and the things were starting to change, he exited the organization. And now when people ask him, okay, what's your next thing? And people are trying to recruit him. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go be a dad for a while. I'm going to chill out. I'm going to figure out what my next move is. And so I just think he's an inspiration, first of all, especially in the space, but also someone who just has really stayed true to who he was in all instances versus riding the wave of technology or competitiveness or trying to be like everybody else. He really created something from a passion, from part of who he is that was revolutionary for social media. 
And I think it's interesting because I love what you say about the right brain, and the left brain thing, because what I you know know about him and what you've you know just articulated is he's so specific about the craft. Yes, and that's what's made it the, what it is. If yes. it was just like I mean anybody could take photos, it's not a big deal. And I'm just putting photos to my copy. I Absolutely, mean, you were doing that on Facebook anyway. So yeah. what's made what made Instagram so much different than Facebook? was the quality and the thoughtfulness behind the imagery, which is what he bore, like that that that's what like was born out of Instagram, right? And mm-hmm. and like even what his website, I can't take pictures like that. So he made that available to the masses yes. even. Like now anybody could take a you know a good picture. And that's fundamentally what was in, so inherently like important about his personal brand and his love for photography and his appreciation for craft, which yes. I would imagine would be another one of his strong, strong personal brand characteristics, totally. is his appreciation for craft and manifesting that into a brand and then a business that actually has spawned so many other businesses. Now you have the Instagram influencers. Uh-huh. Now you have the quality of your photograph is defined by, is it Instagram worthy? <laughs> yes. I mean, is it grammable? I mean, like that, I mean, you have your own jargon related to how, you know, the quality of the photo of the photography is good enough yes. in order actually to, to be on social. And actually a whole lot of the conversation we have to our clients about their Instagram is like the quality of photography is just not good enough. And that doesn't mean you have to be like a professional photographer, but there are certain, you know, tips, techniques and, you know, and trips and tricks and stuff like that, that define the craft Mm -hmm. that make something good here. Yeah. So um, it's an enduring platform, right? Yeah. Given all the other social media things that come up, it's like, it really is a differentiator. Like to your point about being good enough to be on Instagram, you don't say that when you're putting a picture on Facebook. No. So. Facebook is documenting, you know, Your it, life. It, yeah. yeah, it's not, there's no appreciation or there's little appreciation for the craft associated with yes. that photography. But Instagram is all about the quilt, you call it, you yeah. know, and, and, and how all those images work together, coordinate together in order to create the brand and the, and, and the feel of the brand. And so, and that's, you know, totally unique to that platform. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So if you didn't know Kevin Systrom before today, now you do. Take a look into his story. Super interesting. Um, And that is all we have for you today. So go and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.